Okay, well, there's a break from hearing Devin and Toby singing songs on on the uh, coming into the show. Yeah, that's Shane Told from Silverstein singing mm-hmm. a collaboration we did on one of their songs, My Heroine. Uh, Shane's a podcaster. I know that a lot of you guys listen to this podcast called Lead Singer Syndrome. We've collaborated Hell in a, a bunch of ways with him. But that's the song we did earlier that earlier in this pandemic when there was nothing to do. We just got busy and started doing some collaborations and making sure that we were making music and making that part of our discipline to make art and do that kind of thing. And so we have two mixtapes that we made, four songs each, Hawthorne Heights, May, Norma Jean, Boys Night Out. And that's all stuff that's available through Emeryland only. But there's uh, that and a bunch of other EPs and full links and old recordings. Uh, Emeryland is starting to build up quite the catalog. It's like a content library almost over there. Um, there's a bunch of stuff that's not even available on Spotify. So we'd love to have you join Emeryland and see what we're up to and join that community. Um, also, hiring's challenging, especially with everything else you have to consider today. But there's one place that hiring is simple, fast, and smart. And that place is ZipRecruiter. You can try ZipRecruiter for free at ZipRecruiter.com slash badchristian. That's ZipRecruiter.com slash B-A-D-C-H-R-I-S-T-I-A-N. ZipRecruiter, the smartest way to hire. And you're going to like this. It's kind of creative. I'm splitting the beginning promo with that because I have to double back now and say, you go to emorymusic.com to join Emeryland. I would take that on. (laughs) (laughs) Mix them together there. All right, that's the promo. Don't don't be mean to yourself. You are getting old, and you forget stuff more than me now. I feel feel young compared to you now. Like You're the old man. I know. My brain failing is giving way to new forms of creativity, though, you see. I have to it, get myself into weirder and weirder predicaments that you have to be creative to get out of when, you, well, when, a couple you, of old when your things mind I've fails been, you. So I, I welcome it. A couple of old things I've been noticing. Like, I am more wobbly. <laughs> <laughs> but we've always been wobbly. One of, one of the things is we've fallen so much that we kind of know how to fall. So I'm, I feel a little bit okay because I've fallen a bunch. So I mm-hmm. think I can at least prepare myself for getting old and falling, but I am wobbly and that is going to happen. And it is, when you see an old person fall, it just feels like, Oh God, no. And all they did was yeah. just fall over. Like this kind of tripped or something. If you ever watch a YouTube video with just old people falling, it is horrifically yeah, funny. Bad. It is. I can't, I hate Toby laughing at it the way I laugh at it, but it, cause it's oftentimes like just, it's like they're they're running and old people shouldn't be running and it's, they're falling or something like that. They think they can ride a scooter. <laughs> and they fall over. And then also, this week I was like, you know what I'm going to do? I'm going to grow out my beard. I'm going to go. It's it's gray. I I got a real gray beard now. I was like, I'm going to grow it out. And I I did for about three days. I was like, no, I'm just not ready. I'm not just, ready I'm to not be a gray bearded man. Nah, I don't think so yet. So I shaved I shaved off, and I, it just it it kind of itches my face. I don't know. Maybe I'm just not a beard person. But it's going to get so cold. For those of you who don't know, I just moved to Champaign, Illinois. Uh, and right now the weather is unbelievable. It's been amazing since we've been here. Devin and I went to the lake, sat on the beach with our kids and played yesterday. And it was just so fun, but I am so scared about the cold weather. I am petrified of it. I hate it. I hate my toes being cold. I don't like my hands being cold. When I'm cold, I'm miserable. So 
I, I, I probably have said this, but I am not going to spare any expense. No matter what, I'm always going to be. If I don't know if I have to get like electric socks or shoes to keep my feet warm, gloves, anything. There is nothing that I will not pay for. I told myself that when we moved here, I'm going to be warm in the winter because Devin and Megan were saying stuff like it gets in the negatives here mm-hmm. with the wind chill factor or whatever. But I mean, that's just. I don't know what I'm going to do. My heart might stop. What if I walk outside and my heart stops? I don't think that happens. I'm, data shows that Toby going outside, something happens to his heart in the cold. <laughs> you just know it in your heart that it's true. Yeah. That the cold weather might stop your heart. It. I mean, it's so funny. Like, I mean, I live in the – I mean, we ride through – we went and picked corn the other day. <laughs> <laughs> and my kids loved it. But, I mean, there is so – much corn here. I mean, it's uh, there's corn everywhere. I mean, I, seriously, no, I'm not joking. Ten feet from my kid's school. We went over there and got the computers and the supplies and stuff because everything's virtual, by the way. And, uh, bright, I mean, ten feet from the school is a giant cornfield. I mean, mm-hmm. they use every inch they can to grow that corn. It is wild. And it tastes <laughs> good. We got some sweet corn, and it was just wonderful. So, uh, so far, so good. But when the cold comes, I hope I don't – I say still nice things about champagne. What is the uh, situation over there in Illinois with wearing those masks? They get they you, they wear them or they don't wear them. Yeah, they're pretty good about it. Although the cable guy came in the house and didn't wear a mask, and I was like, I should probably tell him to, but I know it's not that big of a deal. But uh, he's only going to be here for a second. And but the uh, pest control guy came today and was wearing a mask. I was like, I really appreciate you wearing a mask. Thank you. And he was like, Yeah. So most places you do, or you have to sit yeah, outside. I, wait, and, that's a joke right there. He's like, What? Are you kidding me? I wouldn't want to breathe this shit. That I'm spraying. Yeah, I know. In your house. <laughs> He's spraying it by my COVID family and my dog. Damn, is DDT yeah. spraying in your I, vents. I probably should wear the mask. Yeah, you're right. But right. Yeah, they're pretty good about it. But uh, it, And I haven't partaken yet, but I live in a state now that marijuana is legal. Oh, that's nice. So I don't even know where. The most hilarious thing about it, uh, you have to park across the street, get in a shuttle, and then drive over to the weed shop. Weird. And that's how you get it. And I think there's one in town here. So that's weird. <laughs> but I have not gone there yet, but I'll I'll tell you about it when I do. So. Well, the um I had a, f- a fun experience. So I was on vacation, went to a lake house in Idaho, and so the very minute that we were leaving um Seattle, which obviously everybody knows Seattle's a more uptight place, yep. and for sure masks are the norm here and the people, you know, I, I I'm always nervous. I, I have a, almost a feeling of nerves when I'm walking down the sidewalk, and more than one or two people are wearing masks outside when I'm not because I don't feel the need to do such things. But right. many people do. Um, and then to go to Idaho, uh, I, my wife's mom. She, we were talking to her on the phone on the way out there and said we're going out to Idaho to Lake House. She goes Idaho. She goes, you know, none of those people wear masks. Like, don't don't drive across the state line. <laughs> I thought that was hilarious. But sure enough, they don't wear them in Idaho. I got to go into this. I, I, I say it like a privilege, but I got to go in this gas station, and there was a ton of people in it, and none of them were wearing masks, not even a single one. And right. I thought, wow. Like, I wasn't scared. I just felt like, wow, what a, this is wild. Like, you know, it felt like some other kind of universe you know and it's just not i was wearing there right i mean I felt that, that they were i was they're gonna be mad at me for wearing a mask right. but i thought it was just really fun to, to experience the other side like that and it's really pretty much just crossing the state line to get there it's weird that's how i felt in south carolina we lived right at uh we lived in north carolina but right at the south carolina border and no one in south carolina really liked wearing them or even social distancing in some slots like 
we had to tell people, would you mind backing up? Like waiting in line to get our groceries. Like you're just too mm-hmm. close. But here everybody seems to be doing it. So Well, here's my new thought on it. This is what I want to say about masks. And this will probably, as usual, make most people irritated. But I feel right about saying it. I don't like anybody who has a strong opinion about masks. So, meaning that if you're very, if you get really intense about masks and why you should wear them, no good. If you get real intense about not wearing a mask, no good. Right. Do you agree with that? 100%. Because they're the same people to me. They're, uh, so, you know, the, the issue is the people on the right that like to be no mask, their main line is something along the lines of, I don't want to be afraid. I don't want to live in fear. I'm not a scaredy person, is what they would say to the other people, um, which I understand that point of view, to be honest, because the people that are very uptight about masks are clearly way overblowing fear, and right. that seems very unhealthy for them from my point of view. Well, here's what I want to say. Uh, right now with masks, with everything, it is right now. And mm-hmm. th- there's a big future, and I want to say more about that. But first, Matt, if oh, you're thinking yeah. about masks, if you're thinking about all this stuff, what 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 can you make? What can you take off your plate to make things easier? Well, Especially it, when it know, comes to hiring people. Spending a lot of time trying to hire people is, is, is something that really can fill up one's plate. So hiring's challenging, especially with everything else you have to consider today, like masks. But there's one place that you can go where hiring's simple, fast, and smart. It's a place where businesses can connect to qualified candidates. That place is ZipRecruiter.com slash Bad Christian. ZipRecruiter sends your job to over a hundred of the web's leading job sites, but they don't stop there. With their powerful matching technology, ZipRecruiter scans thousands of resumes to find people with the right experience and actively invites them to apply to your job. ZipRecruiter is so effective that four out of five employers who post on ZipRecruiter get a quality candidate within the first day, which is quite significant, I believe. And right now, you can try ZipRecruiter for free by going to ZipRecruiter.com slash badchristian. That's ZipRecruiter.com slash B-A-D-C-H-R-I-S-T-I-A-N. ZipRecruiter.com slash badchristian. ZipRecruiter, the smartest way to hire. Here's what I want to say about those masks. It is only right now, and that is going to change, and everything is going to change forever. Like, for example, today was the first day of virtual school for my kids. And I just, I walked over and gave me each a snack. And my daughter was like, I can't eat in class. I was like, this is my house. You're going to eat. If you're in school, I will follow their rules. I will endorse every teacher's and school's rules 100%. We're sending you there. I got their back. But I want them to have my back. And if you're going to, you can eat some popcorn while you're studying. In fact, I think it might help you a little bit, feel a little more relaxed and enjoy it a little bit more. And my daughter's like, I can't. I was like, just do it. She says, what if I get in trouble? I said, with wow. I said, I'm your dad. But she's just, you know, she's a little bit of a rule follower. But, uh, and I, I just made me realize masks are right now. And we know, we just think we know some stuff. Uh-huh. And so we're clinging to it. But when you cling to something, it's going to change. I mean, that's right. what we're, this whole podcast, we're talking about transformative experiences here in a minute with L.A. Paul, and it's just like, if you ain't going to change and roll with this stuff, then you're in real trouble. If you're holding on to masks or that seriously, uh-uh, no matter what, I'm, I'm a mask wearer. I wear it when I go into stores, I, I, I social distance, I think it's good, but it ain't, it ain't anything. It's just a thing uh, we're yes. doing right now. 
Yes, but yes, I think though. So you have the, the people on the right side that are anti-mask talking about the fear present in the other side, and I think right. they're right about that. But it is nothing but fear on the people that refuse masks that is driving their behavior, and that seems right. kind of clear to me that it is in fact them who are also very frightened, and they want to believe that there's they have more control. I mean, there's a denial at the heart of their not wearing a mask that right. says. I have to believe that I am safe, even though I'm not safe. I'm too scared to actually believe that there's a dangerous virus and small actions like this mask could actually make life or death, you know, uh, impacts on mine and other people's lives. That's scary. It's scary to live in the world where your micro actions like wearing a mask actually could matter for your own mortality. So to not face that and say, I ain't wearing no mask is also quite a fear-based mentality no yes it totally so. is i mean it's that well the problem is the internet tells you every possible bad thing that's wrong with you if you go to the internet if you if something's wrong if you feel a little weird you go to the internet and it will tell you you have the worst possible op- opportunity to catch something that's going to kill you or do something awful and so mm-hmm. the real answer is you can't stop stuff you just have to do the best you can and yeah. be confident that you're doing the best you can not that you made the right decision you cannot be confident you made the right decision. Yeah. You can be confident yes. that you're doing the best you can, and that way you can kind of keep some mental health. Because otherwise, if you're worried that you're making wrong decisions constantly, you are going to lose your mind. Because you can't. You can't keep it up. It changes daily. I mean, yeah. everything changes daily. It's unbelievable. I mean, it, it sounds like it's the worst thing ever in Florida or Arizona or California. And then the next day, you're like, well, things, if you look at some data, it's, it's maybe we're, it, things are getting better. No, it's bad. I mean, you can't trust anything except for you're trying to do the best for you, you're trying to do the best for your family. And if you can be confident in that, then you can kind of keep some of your sanity. But if you start thinking, uh oh, I fucked up here, I did this, I did this, because that's me. I think yep. I make the wrong decisions all the time, even though I think about them constantly, trying to do the right thing. I waste so much time going, oh, I need it to be right more than I'm, I'm doing the best I can. That's all I wanted to do. circle back and see what everybody what happened to everybody with the hand washing because I made this crazy effort to become a hand washer yeah. um, at, in April and in, in, in March. And I was like, you know what? I'm going to have to fucking do this because you know what I can do. I'm not going <laughs> to resist. I'm going to really get with it. And I am going to wash my hands. My hands were chapped. I had this lotion, utter cream. Oh, God, I was my on. hands are chapped. I was washing my hands like a fool. I was like, you know what? I, I hate this. I'm a, not a hand washer. I don't believe in hand washing, but I yep. am responding. I'm going to do the best I can. And I'm so glad um, that, I, you know, it's an airborne virus. I don't have to wash my hands. I haven't washed my hands in months, you know. I'm all the way back to not washing hands, and I love it. I bet nobody else is. I'm afraid other people are still locked in that hand oh, wash. We are, 100%. I am. I, I, I let I, it go. I, I, I wish I could be that way. Now, we let go the wiping down groceries and stuff and all yeah, that. Yeah, that's what uh, I'm we, saying. We really same thing. I mean, I'm not yeah, saying yeah. I literally never wash my hands, right. but I don't no, no, right. wash my hands because of COVID concerns yeah. around the house all day. Uh, yeah. But I'm a very low hand washer. Anyway. When it first happened, um, we would Jess would go get groceries by whew. herself or me, and then we'd bring it in the house. We'd make the kids get back, get back. Yeah. We, 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 get away from those that. groceries. Go on, get away from that. You don't eat that. Hold on, that ain't, that's not your orange yet. And we'd wash it all, you know, whatever, wash it and clean it, all, everything we could. And, and now did I'm you like, wipe Man. down that Trisket box that yeah. she's holding? <laughs> I told you not to eat that. <laughs> it's not clean. You want to die? 
That's the way it's, I treat my kids. You, you think some die? people? Some people are still there, though, right? Some people of didn't course. release themselves from that. I, from that, a lot mentality. of the world is. I mean, and and you know what? They can go online and prove that they're right. That's what I'm saying. You can yeah, prove that it's horrible and that people are dying and it's awful and it's just. I mean, we the this is the most time I forget. I think we might have had a guest on. It might have been Ryan Burge. I'm not sure. This is the most bizarre time ever where we I realize no one understands reading data. We do not under it is we are such an emotionally charged uh, at least at USA country. I'll, I'll leave all the other countries out, but at least us, we're so emotionally charged that it doesn't matter. When you say something like I don't wash my hands much, people um, have an emotional response, not a scientific data-driven response at all. Now, some people do, but I'm saying there's a large group of folks out there that go, what are you talking about? If you just wash your hands, it could be this, this. If you just wear a mask, we could do this, this. And and maybe there's some truth and validity to it, but there's a lot of emotion there and a lot of control and a lot of saying, you got to do this because I'm I'm telling you this is means you're you're right and this means you're wrong. And that's just, I mean, I don't even know. It, it, it's crazy. There, uh, I was walking into Home Depot. Two people in front of me, they didn't wear their masks. I was like, man, there's a giant sign that said, everybody has to wear a mask in here. Mm-hmm. And uh, I was like, ah, I feel bad because we're in Home Depot and everything's pretty spread out. Should I tell them or something? They're going to get in trouble, I bet. And then uh, I saw them both go, oh, our mask. And they went back out and got their mask. But I was like, they. I love those people. They, that's they had to people. realize that yeah, they had to great. actually, because it's a new norm. Yeah. You know what I mean? They weren't, they weren't being evil or trying to kill anybody. You don't think about it. You're like, oh, shoot, I got to do this thing. Yeah. You know, well, I, there's I, a big difference in that. And first of all, that means those people aren't, you know, terribly afraid and they also are trying to do the right thing. That's like right. a good spot to be in. 100%. But there's a big difference. I tried to point it out to Bridget and said, we were going somewhere the other day. Um, I can't remember what it was, but she goes, oh, I don't have my mask. Oh, no. And she got all weirded out about it. But it was yeah. a situation where she didn't need a mask. Oh, we were like going to be at the park or something with some right. other people. And she got this panic when she realized she didn't bring her mask. And I said, Bridget, I don't think you use a mask at the park, though, right? And she's like, uh, yeah, okay. And, you know, the point right. is, do, are you is your anxiety about not having a mask a social anxiety now? Yes, yes. Versus or a safety anxiety because they're not the same, right. but your body kind of doesn't know the difference. Right. You know, because she felt like, oh, no, it's COVID and I forgot my mask. Right. Okay, so it's a, there's a social concern here. I want to signal that I'm a participant at the park that is respectful before I take right. my mask off. But that's, you know, that's not the same thing as I'm afraid I'll die if I don't have this. So right. you kind of have to sort it in your mind which of those is driving your behavior because if you get them confused you think everything's life and death that's not a great state I, I to live in for was, a year it, i wish we could just have real conversation about like I, i've said this before i wish trump two months ago three months at the beginning of this goes hey listen everybody we are going to enforce let's wear a mask for six weeks and let's yeah. just look at the real data. We're going to pay the best people. They're going to study this data. And we'll know if these masks, how much it actually saves your life and your friend's life and your parents' life. We'll actually have some real data. But everybody, everything's so left and right. And everybody's decided it's a conspiracy or it's or it's real or whatever it is that you don't you can't do anything. You can't have a consensus on anything. You just mm-hmm. can't unless a real leader steps up and goes, hey, this is what we got to do. Some of you won't like it. This is what we got to do. 
that's what I wish we had, but we don't have that at all. I don't I don't actually think we're gonna get that. I don't know what's gonna happen. I mean <laughs> I'm not going into politics. I'm not going into politics. We got LA Paul coming <laughs> and I, I want to talk about transformative experiences and all that stuff. But first, Reba, kick some music for me. This is Micah Bentley. Try to make me think That there won't be enough Enough for them and me Oh, scarcity You're lying through your teeth The overflowing cup Beckons a common dream All right, you were listening and listening to uh, independent folk rock artist Micah Bentley, and this is really cool. Uh, we've kind of been able to promote here on the podcast now some independent artists. You can go to MicahBentley.com. This is a single called Scarcity off his brand-new full-length record, No Rivalry, out now wherever you listen. Micah recorded and produced this album with Rob Witham from Fine China, mixed by Bob Hogue of Flying Blanket Studios, and this record is a mix of influences from classic rock, Folk like Neil Young to David Bazan, two amazing favorites of mine, uh, which I never thought I would say. I used to think I would never like Neil Young, and now I actually really do. So you're going to like Michael Bentley, maybe even more. Uh, no Rivalry is songs of protest and invitations from the for, for the current moment. Visit MicahBentley.com to watch the music video for Scarcity and order the 12-inch vinyl of the new album, No Rivalry. Follow on Spotify and Instagram at Micah Bentley. That's B E. N T L E Y Micah Bentley, uh, and you can also watch a full band online release show that is out now at micahbentley.com. Okay, so we're having Lori Paul join us in a minute. She goes by L.A. Paul, also as an author. She is a professor at Yale University, and she's written a book and does her academic work on something called the transformative experience, which uh, we'll get into, and I'll let her set up and explain. But I found it to be incredibly fascinating and mentally stimulating to just get into the territory to consider what does it mean to have a transformative change in your life, sometimes because it's unexpected, sometimes it's on purpose, and there's a bunch of different frames to think through it with. So I thought it would be terrific to get to speak with her. Um, Her book isn't on audiobook, but it gripped me so much that it's the only book uh, that I've ordered a physical copy of. I guess I've probably ordered one or two physical books out of the last probably 15 I've read. Um, but this is one of them, and uh, so I thought it'd be great to get her on. It's just fascinating to find, you know, mentally stimulating people. We've had a good string of them this year, uh, and I expect this one to be good. Uh, she'll be joining us in just in a second. Well, Lori, thank you for joining us today very much. I've been looking forward to this conversation for a while. Um, when I originally found you and heard you on some podcasts, it was a, it was a long time ago, and even pre-pandemic, I think, and then we scheduled for later and then postponed one or two times. And now the whole world has changed um, since we were first in contact. So it's kind of uh, interesting to be able to even uh, come to this interview from that point of view. Speaking of 
transformative experience because it seems like the whole globe is, you know, experiencing one at the same time. Yeah. Um, thanks for inviting me. I'm glad to be here. And yeah, we've, um, we're undergoing what I would call a transformative experience, you know, as we speak and have been right over the last few months. So it's, that can be fresh in our minds maybe as we talk about the. Yeah. I mean, this is a topic that you've been studying for several, several years now, at least. Right. But I I don't know if you could have predicted what it could mean for the whole globe to go under one all at once. That's just unimaginable of of an experiment. And maybe there'll be some good natural experiment outcomes from this that will help you in your further research. Mm -hmm. No, it actually has been. I mean, both because sort of stepping back and just kind of watching um, what's happening like through the lens of a, you know, the philosophical view that I have, but also personally, because it's been so hard in, in, in many ways. And part of what I like to think about is how transformative experiences are kind of personally hard, but they're hard in different ways um, for different people. And it's sort of a, ref- a refresher course for me to kind of go through it again. Cause I, Felt like I've, I feel like I've gone through a couple of transformative experiences and learned a lot from those. And that's what I draw on when I write. And this was another chance to learn some more, you know. That's terrific. We, um, I saw that you've done some things and are friends with in some way, Agnes Callard, who's been on the podcast before. Um, so there's some common ground there. We really enjoyed our conversation um, with her and thought that was uh, great that you have that connection. So our audience will be somewhat primed on, on that that level of discourse and the, in the philosophy philosophy we all come from these religious backgrounds where philosophy was kind of not really you know it was i wouldn't say it's frowned upon but it's largely ignored and so a lot of us have come to learn philosophy and move toward rationality as we've begun to ask questions uh for ourselves and people like you and uh, agnes and and beyond and have been really good resources it's um yeah that's well that's it's cool because um i feel like um especially Religious belief is a is a play is 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 a place where um, it's really important to think about the nature of the world and to think about the nature of yourself and to think about the nature of the mind. Those are all really central questions in philosophy, and they're really central questions um, for me in the work that I do. So it's a really nice, I think, um, connection. Even if the the kinds of things that people have thought about are different, the the, the larger questions and the way of thinking. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's, it's relatable. The more we get distance I, from yeah. it, we do a process. We we think of this as a deconstruction type of experiment that that we've embarked on. And the farther and farther we get through it, you start to really see the principles and the questions that were being wrestled with, and all of these things were actually there all along. But uh, oftentimes we may have gotten distracted by dogma or social things. But the, you, I, I do agree, tend to agree. The more I get up. Uh, reflective about it, I can see that all the stuff I was wrestling with in a religious context are still the same questions that I have, and there's just different language and approaches to uh, answering and wrestling with the same type of questions. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah, I feel like one of the really big things is, um, you know, like, what is the nature of the world, and how are we supposed to, what do we take to be evidence, and how do we think about um, what we get through our senses and evaluate it? I mean, one of the, um, so, you know, if, if you're religious, you might think that um, you're experiencing the divine when you see something beautiful or you see something amazing, or you experience awe. Um, and if you're not religious, you might have that same kind of feeling, but you won't think of it as experiencing the divine. You think of it as some amazing feature of the universe, but a kind of godless universe, let's say. And I'm really interested in that because we have these sensations and experiences and we interpret them, but it's not like there's any 
mind independent way really to know which sort of interpretation to put on things. And so what can happen is you shift from one kind of interpretation to another. And I just think that's philosophically really interesting. And that's also how we learn. So Mm -hmm. I think for me, one of the reasons why I love uh, guests like you is that uh, I, I feel like I have a lot of, I've had a lot and still seem to continue to have a lot of transformative experiences, but I can't, it's hard for me to judge like, how big they are or small they are and the importance of them and what they really mean. For example, my, like I was just was telling you at the beginning, I just moved my family 700 miles. We have three elementary school kids. Uh, we're in a small town. We moved from Charlotte, North Carolina to Champaign, Illinois. We're in cornfields. We were near, you know, the ocean and all this stuff. And I'm like, man, all the, what, was, what does this mean for my family and for me and for my brain? And then at the same time, I still had to come back down and get the invoice from the pest control guy. <laughs> and that's very important. Just ask my wife how right. important that is. It's really important. And right. so I go, wait a minute, but I have to do those things. And so sometimes I feel torn or, or maybe torn in the right word, pulled in different directions of level importance uh, of importance for, you know, if we're talking about God, I no longer feel that sending my kids to church or us going to church is really the best possible way to help the, expose them to a greater power or a God or a creator or something like that. But mm-hmm. at the same time, I, on the small level, I'm like, man, it's just nice to have some friends. You know, you know what I mean? Right. Right. So this is interesting. Actually, this reminds me of, so just in with doing philosophy generally, there's this famous example in Hume where he talks about, so uh, David Hume was a, um, was a metaphysician and an epistemologist and um, a Scottish thinker. And, was really interesting and really creative and really very weird. Okay. And um, he had lots of really weird ideas and, but brilliant ideas. And he describes how he would find himself backed into a corner in his study, kind of mentally, you know, questioning whether the fire was really there in front of him, like, or what did the fire, was the fire there after he left and came back? Or was there, was it really possible to make sense of one thing causing another or all, all kinds of like really interesting questions that he was among the first to raise. And then he said, and I get overwhelmed by all this. And then I just go back and play some backgammon or, uh, you know, have dinner with friends. And I, and I come back down to earth. And that's also incredibly important. And like, so finding the balance there, right? Doing both back and forth and recognizing um, that, you know, sometimes it gets a little like the abstruse thought gets a little bit overwhelming. That's, I think that's also important. Like that doesn't devalue it. So we're in the territory of philosophy here, but also you're in the field of cognitive science. Can we define that um, a little bit and explain it, uh, what it is? I am just so fascinated with it, mainly because it's, 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 like a, it's basically like a new field. And I remember being, I know it has roots from the 50s or, or before, I'm sure, but the fact that there are new fields in psychology and science that are interdisciplinary like that, it's just... I'd never thought when I was a kid trying to decide what I wanted to do that there would be whole areas of study that didn't exist yet, you know, and so much has happened in science and especially in brain science and neuroscience and human development that I, I, you know, if I could just go back, I would have been focused on it probably my whole life, but I didn't even understand that there was a field like this and now there is one. And so I feel like it's just so fascinating, um, especially with artificial intelligence and things we're learning about child development, the brain and just consciousness and awareness. And I just, that's every bit of curiosity I ever had about the world now kind of lands in that space and it's all very abstract. Um, but how t- can you tell us about this field uh, and give us a background in it, and then we'll define what transformative experience is from there. All right, I will try. So um, cognitive science is really an interdisciplinary field, and it's a really good question, like what is it? And so you can think of it as um, the study of 
thought, cognition, um, and in, in, with a focus on human cognition, so the study of the human mind, um, kind of looked at from lots and lots of different angles. So from a psych, psych, like from a psychological angle, from computer science um, is one of the one of the disciplines. Um, philosophy, linguistics, um, economics, sometimes um, you know. Uh, artificial intelligence and computer science or sort of AI really is its kind of own area now in, in many ways. And so um, um, mathematics can maybe be uh, connected into, in, into cognitive science. And so the thought is that actually in neuroscience, arguably, um, the thought is that you, all of these different disciplines, you know, are interested in questions that are sort of, um, you can think of a whole bunch of like um, circles, like with an overlapping, like a Venn diagram with like an overlapping section, you know, cognitive science is the thing that's like at the center, right? And um, it's not brain science straightforwardly, brain science, neuroscience matters, but it's about, if you, if, if, if you consider like, well, how do we think about things? How do we think about the world? What are concepts? How do we develop and, and uh, how, how do our brains develop and how do we grasp and create concepts? Um, how does the mind compute things? Um, those, that's not just about brain science. I mean, brain science matters. You need to know how uh, neurons are firing and things like that, but you also need to know, for example, how babies get concepts. So developmental psychology plays a role, right? Mm -hmm. Um, how do we use language to try to express ourselves? How are we unable to use language to express ourselves? That's actually related to transformative experience. Like experience itself sometimes is necessary. Like language sometimes can't, can't do it. Um, and philosophy is also sometimes about like, well, what is a concept, you know? And what are we talking about when we talk about vision or perception? Like, what does that mean? Um, and so the thought is that um, if you're interested just in studying kind of cognition in this way, and primarily maybe human cognition, but animal cognition and, um, and, uh, artificial intelligence also gets covered here, then you need to look at it from all these different angles because it's such a fascinating uh, kind of complex topic. Mm -hmm. so. And so people that wind up in it originally started in other fields and converged there, but now it's a, it's its own discipline and study in a way that people can go into it with that mindset. Like if you had a question of, or, you know, if you had a question about how to, like somebody going in this field would be seeking to understand cog human cognition better, but can you give me an, another example of like, what is there to be achieved in the, in the coming decades here? So the thing about cognitive science is the stage that it's at, you can, you usually, you might be able to major in college in cognitive science, but you couldn't get a PhD in cognitive science. So it's not as much in some sense of a, of a specific discipline, the way that say philosophy is or psychology is where you can get a PhD in philosophy or a PhD in psychology, just study for an extra six years and write, you know, a book length kind of treatise or whatever. Um, so that means that um, if you have one of these questions, you would want to refine it in some way, like make it a particularly philosophical question or a particularly psychological question, or maybe something in computer science. But then as your primary, and that would be your primary field and the primary way you would frame the question. But then if you wanted to be do cognitive science, in addition to say neuroscience or philosophy, then you would bring in these other perspectives and have an interdisciplinary side to the, to the project that you were engaging. So that's, I think, the way to think about. And uh, do you have any sense of what things might be accomplished or impacted in the coming decades from this? I think one of the really exciting ways in which um, cognitive science is, is, 
has been developing and is developing is partly um, with its relationship to um, artificial intelligence. And so um, I think one thing that we've been learning more and more is that if we want to build, try to build machines that can interact with humans and that can think flexibly and, um, and intelligently in the truest sense of the word, then we need to be able to reverse engineer certain kinds of things that humans can do, which means we need to understand how humans think about these things. So kind of even though machines especially a lot of the machines that we build now, they don't think like humans, even if they can think better than we can on some dimensions and other ways, of course, they're terrible, right? Um, and we don't always want to build machines that can think like people. Sometimes we want to build them in ways that don't, so they don't think like people, so they can be better at us in certain things. We also do want machines that, you know, can interact with us. And, and maybe we want, I hope, you know, we can have ones that are kind of ethically controlled in some sense. And so we need to understand human thought because that's a way of saying, well, we want them to make them more human-like in certain ways. Um, and it turns out to be incredibly hard to like um, to think about, for example, when you look at a picture, what is it that, why, why is your eye drawn to certain things rather than other things? Like, why do you notice when you see a bunch of colors like on a screen, why do you see something as a car? Or, um, you know, as, as, as a, like if you're playing a computer game, like you get all these, you're just seeing all these colors on a screen, but you interpret it as like, oh, you've got, you know, a weapon and you're kind of, you know, getting the bad guy or you are driving a car or something like that. And there's yeah. a whole lot of processing that goes into that and understanding how the human mind works and creates that kind of representation mm -hmm. is kind of essential for all of this. Well, you can take that video game analogy and just overlay it into real reality and understand that you're basically seeing, you're both basically experiencing the world as an through an interface as it is, you know, because it seems plain as day when I'm in a, a, a war video game that I'm in a war and have a weapon, and I can have that same experience in, in this reality through the interface of my eyes and, and touch and, you know, feeling. So to me, that's never been much of a leap to think that why would you think that there's any difference in this interface to the game and, or if you were born with your eyes glued to a, a video game, you wouldn't really know the difference. Well, exactly. So that's the whole question. Like, you know, are we living in a simulation, the matrix or whatever? But now remember that those questions came first and then video games, for instance, were created once we realized that we could think of ourselves as living in something like where we, we distinguish between perceptions and then constructing a representation of the world in order to be able to build computers that and to understand how um, perception worked to create computer games. We had to have that concept. So it's super cool. Like you're exactly right that now we reverse engineer our understanding of like questions we could ask about the nature of reality through experiencing video games. But we had to ask those questions originally to get the distinction between perception and reality to be able to have the idea of building a video game. Yeah, that's true. That's interesting. Yeah, well, it's inter it's also interesting too because you have to really get it right because if you don't, people automatically use one of their senses and can tell. For example, right now, sports events, they pump in sound and I've heard so many people go, it just doesn't seem right. Mm -hmm. Because it, they know that it's fake or it's not exactly the right thing or mm -hmm. the sound is off by a second or two or the wrong cheers for the wrong team by accident or something you know mm -hmm. and everybody goes no that's wrong right. and, but but exactly. the, but the I mean it's an amazing technology to be able to be pumping in all that sound and audio and everything like that but a computer probably wouldn't recognize it the same way or feel disappointment from from that mm -hmm. maybe mm -hmm. and also like that illustrates just how hard it is to do that it's not I mean. You know, you might think, oh, it's so easy, but then try to build something like that yourself. And right. you realize, first, it's hard to do. But second, there's just so much we don't even know. Like, what is it exactly that, like, is off there? And then how do we fix that? If it were easy to fix it, they would fix it, right? right. But sometimes it's just, like, not knowing quite enough about how the brain is processing different kinds of sounds and um, how those different kinds of um, 
um, sound waves are combined. And sometimes it's actually combined with various kinds of um, eye movements that we make. So we, we, we present a, a representation of the world, like you're watching a game that integrates vision um, as well as sound, but it's a really complex thing that our brain does. And you have to know, we have to know enough about how our brain does that to kind of create the right kinds of inputs so that we can see it the right way and hear it the right way. Great. Okay. This is a great warm up to now begin to talk about transformative <laughs> experience. So I, I love this. I'm already feeling um, very happy. Um, so let's do a, a thought experiment. I know you've, I've heard you do the vampire one more than once. I don't know if that is continually your favorite or if you have other ones you like to use, but I think that would be the best way to get in one way or another. But I'd certainly give you the option of varying the thought experiment if you're getting sick of the ones that you use. I've heard you do it in, you know, more than one podcast. So. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, I like the vampire one. Um, I can give you a, a, one of the real world cases that I like to think about or more real world cases is um, somebody who grows up blind. Okay. And, um, and then has the chance to, to, to gain uh, uh, vision. Since we're talking about kind of cognitive science and, and brain science, it seems like that. that let's, let's do that. That's great. Okay. So imagine. Um, so, okay. So um, the work that I do on transformative experience, it's, this is a philosophical concept of a certain kind of, you know, massive self-change. But it's not, it, and it involves what we would ordinarily think of something transformative, like life-changing. But there's another dimension to it, too. And so I'll give you a thought experiment to sort of illustrate what I have in mind. And then we, if you, you know, we can talk about it in, in some detail. So imagine that you, um, that you're 25, you grew up blind, um, and, um, you've never had anything resembling ordinary vision. And then, um, uh, a retina surgeon comes to you and says, I've developed a new technique. Um, I can operate on you and, um, and give you the ability to, to see. And, um, and you think this is incredibly exciting, obviously, like, let's say, um, your family, um, has ordinary vision. So you want to be able to do things with them, like watch movies, you know, and, um, see a sunset and other kinds of things and experience the world the way that they experience the world. Um, and so, um, but the surgeon says, well, actually, you know, we've done a lot of research on people who've been able to kind of gain vision in adulthood. And in general, people are not happy with with the results. They enjoy the vision, but it changes their life so much that they don't like it. So, in all, I know that you, you know, you want to do this and I'd love to have you as my experimental subject, but you got to understand that you probably aren't going to be happy with the results. And you might think, well, no, uh -uh, no, I know what I want. I know I want to like have this times with my family. I'm people talk about, you know, vision as being this amazing thing and exclaim about the beauty of the colors and things like that. Like, of course I want to do that. And I think that's perfectly reasonable, right? Like, I think if I were in that situation, I would want to have, you know, right. um, mm-hmm. but uh, in any case, um, so you, you, you decide to do it. Okay. And um, a way to kind of get the concept going here is to say, well, so let's say you decide to have the operation um, and you talk to lots of people who have ordinary vision, maybe you talk to some people who've had um, the surgery um, and, the, but the night before the operation, right, you think about like, what's going to happen because we'll just presume that you, when you open your eyes after the surgery, you'll get enough, you know, you'll have enough kind of input that you'll suddenly start seeing the world. And I think the thing to try to imagine is how you must, how, when you think about the future, when you think about what it's going to be like for you to live your life after the surgery, there's a way in which you can't know that. Like maybe, you know, you take the testimony as reliable. Sure. You think there are things you're not going to be happy about, but the nature of your future lived experience 
the future after having a surgery is just unknown to you in a really, I think, deep and fundamental way. And so um, the way that I would put it is um, this surgery, it's going to change your life, obviously, and it's going to change things that you care about um, because you'll start caring about things that you can see, like people report caring about what people look like, which they didn't care about before when they were blind. They might care what people's faces felt like, but they didn't have any kind of real concept of like what people looked like. Um, but also, not only are you going to care about different things, you're just going to experience the world differently. And how you imagine experiencing the world before you've had the operation is probably nothing like how it's actually going to be. So I think of this, I use a, a term and I talk about like there's an epistemic wall um, that you're facing, like when you're at the night before the operation, like I think about it as there's this kind of, uh, I imagine like sort of um, a metaphor of like, let's say you're in a city somewhere and you're standing like in an alley and you're just facing a brick wall with a high building with no windows. And you don't know what's past that wall and you can't see anything, right? Um, aside from what's right in front of you. And I think mentally there's a way in which the future can be like what's beyond that wall. Um, and if it's transformative, because it's going to be such a radical change from anything that you've known, you can't see past it. If it were familiar, it would be a different story. But in this case, it's unfamiliar territory. And that new stuff that you're going to discover in virtue of gaining sight is going to change your life and change who you are in a very fundamental way. Mm -hmm. And in that it's, sense, it's going to be transformative. It changes who you actually are. Like you would not be able to continue to retain with it necessarily or in any known way what your current preferences are even them the you that makes you you and what you know about the world is going to change in ways that you can't even have a glimpse of until you're fully immersed in, in on the other side that's right the way i would say it is i would say that's right so there's a sense in which you know who you are is sort of compiled by all the different ways that you are at different times of your life right and so like there was who i was as a child and who i am now as an adult and who i'll be when i'm you know, retired and uh, assuming I get to live that long. And, and who I am as a person is that series of selves, we might say. And mm. ordinarily, there's a lot of continuity. But in this kind of case, there's going to be a lot of, there's going to be some radical discontinuity. And it doesn't mean that everything I care about is going to change, but something really important is going to change. And in particular, um, in this example, um, my audition or, or my hearing was my dominant sense modality. How I understood and interpreted the world was primarily in terms of sound. And that's going to change when I gain vision. All of a sudden, like the nature of my perceptions are going to change. What I care about, like, it's, you know, it's, it's going to change. And very, like how I organize my life is going to change. How I live in my house, how I get dressed, all these things are going to change. Maybe how I care about other people is going to change too, because I'll suddenly see them. Um, and so, yeah, so maybe not, not everything about me is going to change, but some core preferences are going to change. And so the self that I'll become is not continuous with the self that I am now. And Current self and future self being actually distinct in a discontinuous way. Exactly. exactly. Yeah. Which is quite uncomfortable yes. to think about. <laughs> yes. Yes. Um, I think it is. I mean, and, and, and we fear that kind of change a lot of times and I think quite, quite reasonably so. Um, and so, um, I mean, sometimes we want it. Right. And so that's one of the other things I'm really interested in is like how we have these, this kind of relationship with possible future selves that we could, that we could create. Like, I feel like we make ourselves in various ways through choosing to have transformative experiences. Mm -hmm. I mean, we don't often, like, not a lot of us haven't had the choice to become sighted, but you can have the choice to become a parent or you can um, enlist in the military or you can move 
to the other side of the world. Um, uh-huh. Those are all those are all ways in which I think you can replace who you are with with a different self. on the wall replaying every story reality got lost in the fear Quick break from that conversation so you can hear a little bit of this music. You're listening to Locked in My Head. It's the newest single from Fit for a King's new record, The Path. Now, Fit for a King, I don't know if you know this or not, but they've just exploded and continue to explode. Uh, Every time I talk to Brandon Evil, he tells me a new Spotify playlist that they're on or something amazing that's happened with them. Uh, So Tooth and Nail, Solid State is quite stoked on this band, as are a growing amount of fans they're really making a dent um they have a they have a record called the path and it comes out september 18th and it's their sixth studio album they've got tons of build your own merch pre-order bundles at fitforakingband.com so check that out there's still way more music coming out from them leading up to september 18th not just the song so be sure to hit the follow button on Spotify as they leak out those singles uh, in anticipation of the record coming out. It's The Path. It's out September 18th. This song is called Locked in My Head, and it's on Spotify. Go save it. Go flag it. Go reserve it. Go add it to your playlist now. Okay. Is the reason why you study this and are fascinated by it is, are you saying you, we should put more weight before moving forward with the transformative experience or the possibility of one? Like, like is that the, the key, using your uh, analogy of the, the blind person, they should maybe take way more time to think about it before they do it? Like, be careful what you wish for or what it... No, that's a good question. So no, that's not exactly what I think that's a very natural thing to ask about. And part of what my work is about is saying that you would think that that's what we're supposed to do. Think about it more, but I'm going to give you an example in a minute, but in a certain way, I don't, I'm, I think we have to think about it in a different way. Like thinking about it more won't help, even though we expect it to help. Yeah. Yeah. So, so, so another example, and this is an example from my own life is um, becoming a parent. Um, and I, um, and what happened was when I had my, I had my, my daughter and, um, she was a little baby and I, after like, it took a couple of months to sort of recover from like just becoming a new parent. And I remember thinking, wow, this is like, this was, I had done as much preparation as I, as I could have. I read the books, you know, I talked to people, I had been around children. I thought a lot about all these, you know, about, about becoming a parent and then decided to decide to do it and was, you know, physically able. So I was lucky that way. And then when it happened, and in particular, like giving birth and becoming attached to this little being that was totally dependent on me, it was, it just, yes, I in some sense knew it was going to happen, but the nature of it was like seeing for the first time. Like it just, the nature of that experience was not available to me until I had it. And 
I had to have it to really know what it was like to become a parent, um, a mother. And it changed me. And the, one of the main ways that it changed me is it made me care about someone else more than myself. Not that I didn't do that in some sense before. I mean, you know, there are lots of people I cared about, but like in a sense where it was just visceral, like if someone had put up a, put, put a gun to my head and said, you or your baby, I'd say, take me. Mm-hmm. And I had never, I just never had that authentic preference before. And then that had huge, has huge implications for the, your future life. It makes you a totally different person. But it's funny to think about that because everybody's used to the idea of, oh, I would sacrifice my kid. Like that, you will even hear people explain that. But I mean, it's, it's not that far off to say, yeah, but Toby, what if I told you that if you take this other experience, you would, there's another person who you've not met yet who you would gladly get, that, that you would feel so strongly about them. Now, you haven't met them yet, but once you meet them, you will definitely die for them. If you like to meet them, I'll introduce you. <laughs> exactly, exactly. But you'll be happy to. You'll be glad. I mean, you'll willingly take a bullet for the right. guy. Do you want to meet him? <laughs> and, and it might be rational to say no, right? Because yeah, like, <laughs> who you are now, be like, no, 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 no. Right. I prefer me. I, I'm nothing against this guy. But yeah. right, right. just to go back to the question that Toby asked me about, like, well, is it that if you just think about it more, you would think, like, do you want to become a parent? Think about it really, really hard. Absolutely, you should think about it. But the really essential thing about becoming a parent just isn't accessible to you un- until you do it. And mm-hmm. so then you're in a kind of a bind, right? And I want to emphasize this because I think that sometimes people, you know, I think that people should be responsible for their choices and that they're responsible when they become parents for their child and things like that. But also there's something that you couldn't have known before you did it. And so that, you know, and so I, I think people can be too hard on themselves for not like, oh, I should have thought about this more or I should have thought about this differently. But if you couldn't really know the thing of essence, no matter how hard you thought, thought then the way to think about the decision is like, do I want to discover? Like, yeah. Like, yeah, the question is, do I want to be a different person or not? Exactly, exactly, exactly. And where you can't really know what that new person's going to be like. And so just like, do I want to undergo this change and make this kind of discovery and find out what the world is like this way or don't I? Mm-hmm. So that's the way because like, they're irreversible effectively by in your definition, right? Um, the way that um, I would say they don't have to be. I, the examples I, t- I give tend to be irreversible. Um, and I think, I think, let's put it this way, um, just to get get it kind of with the metaphysics or the philosophy of it. Even if, let's say, you underwent a transformative experience that, in some sense, was reversible, where you could, uh, and sometimes religious transformation could be this way. Like someone might be a believer and then lose their faith and then they might regain their faith. And there's a kind of, that's, Mm -hmm. you know, there's a sense in which then belief uh, or faith could be, uh, or losing your faith could be reversible. But I don't think you're the same person even so once you've gone through that, Mm -hmm. because you're still the person that was a believer and then wasn't a believer and now is a believer again, let's say. So born again, I mean, that, that notion itself is, is basically getting right at transformative experience. I mean, exactly. almost anybody that would describe a conversion as born again or, or when I met Jesus or something like that, that, that usually would qualify in that they, if their life's are totally different ever since I met Jesus, they would say, you know, like that, that would qualify. And, exactly. and then, then there's, was that a choice? Did they make that choice? Did they make it rationally? Was it, so I think you know. so that so so um, one way to think about transformative experiences is in terms of decisions. So I was when I, my original example about the blind about if you were blind, would you decide to do it, and how do you decide to? And then we were talking and having a child and things like that. But but you can have a transformative experience that isn't chosen. And I think religious transformative experiences, both gaining and losing faith, are often not chosen in any straightforward sense. Maybe you choose 
as, as Agnes would say, you choose to do other things that like lead you up to it. But I don't think it's a kind of direct, a direct choice, uh, at least most of the time. And becoming a parent might not be a direct choice either. I mean, um, in fact, if you were an unwilling parent and say that you didn't want to become a parent, and even though everyone said you were going to be so happy with that situation after, you said, no, no, I don't want to meet this guy. I don't want to be, uh, you know, mm-hmm. I like myself the way I am. You might still find yourself obviously becoming a parent because it can happen by accident and still then afterwards be like, wow, this is so great. I'm glad this accident happened. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) Yes. And so if you were, if you were currently religious and thinking of not being religious, you may not have a choice. I think it may happen gradually over time. I mean, it can be gradual. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. I think so. And I think um, there's interesting stuff in, um, so uh, Pascal wrote about, uh, about a religious belief and he, famously wrote about how it would be rational to choose to believe in God. But there's this outstanding question about, well, like, why think that this is some kind of rational choice in the first place, right? And so what's the answer? Well, maybe, you know, what what people suggest is that you practice, you know, you, you go to church or you um, engage in other kinds of activities that uh, could potentially put you into contact with the divine. And so you open your mind in this way through experience rather than kind of rational assessment. I think that's, I think that's the way to think about uh, both certain kinds of practices in, in many religions and also how to kind of think about it theoretically. Um, and you can go the other way, right? Like if you want to leave the faith or you want to explore that possibility, this is why it can be very threatening. You start engaging in practices that could undermine um, I see. So you'd have to be open to the experiences that might cause the the cascade event to happen or something. Yes. And that's that's about being open. And so people are on some spectrum of openness to such things, to put themselves in positions where it might happen or they sometimes it is a a conscious choice. Uh, Toby and I um, probably exist on one more extreme end of that spectrum um, in that there's, you know, Toby and I playing a band. We left our hometown and everything we knew to move to the West Coast to start a band and try to make it and be an entertainment. And basically our decision making was we just have to put ourselves in the most radically different possible situation if we want anything at all to happen. Mm-hmm. Um, and that worked for mm-hmm. us. And I think many times over the years we've taken that approach when um, almost as a substitute to uh, trying to figure out what would be best or having a goal, we just tend mm-hmm. to resort to, well, let's try make a some radical change that's irreversible and then we'll become something will happen. <laughs> I love that. The- no, but I think that's exactly like, look, I and I have done the same myself. And I think there's a way in which part of what I want to say is that thinking about it can be good. I mean, it can help you see what some of the consequences could be, but there's a way in which thinking about it isn't going to get you anywhere, mm-hmm. right? It's like, because I said this at the very beginning, sometimes... Um, language and like what others can tell you and descriptions and other things aren't enough to teach you what you really need to know. The only way that you're going to learn it is by doing it, but it's going to change you when you do it. And so like, do you take the leap or don't you? That's what the, that's what the decision really involves. It's it's funny too, because like, it's funny that you use that, uh, take the leap because one of Matt knows one of my big fears is like jumping off to something in the water. I just hate it. And we went to the river a few years back and all my friends just jump right in and they're in their tubes and they're starting to float away. And I'm standing there on the bank going, and my, and, I, and now I look back at it going, how much stuff was going through my mind? 
well, this is how high, I'm figuring out, I'm using mathematics to figure out how far this is going to be. I'm thinking about the temperature of the water, how fast it's moving, because I'm scared, because I wear glasses and contacts. What if I come up with my contacts, and then I can't, you know, all this stuff. I'm thinking about every possible thing. And then the main thing that pops up that wins out of everything is your friends are floating away. Yeah. <laughs> and then all of a sudden, I'm in the water. Yeah. You know, I'm, I'm yeah. in the water. And yeah. so the, the simplest thing, the easiest thing motivated me the most of all. Like, I mean, it wasn't the, it, there wasn't really a rationality there. I would, I knew, yeah. I knew I would see my friends again. They weren't going to float away forever, <laughs> but the idea there. And, and so it, to me, one thing, even going back to religion and having one, your article, uh, what, what you can expect when you're, uh, what not to, what you can't expect when you're expecting. I thought mm-hmm. it was so great. Cause you said you can't really make a rest. It's not a rational decision. When you think about, uh, why you should have a baby, you're not really yeah. going to make a rational decision. The same way as even believing in God, it often seems to me, Sometimes when it, it is almost an accident or you have some transformative experience where you weren't thinking about it, it actually feels way more. Because I, growing up, I grew up in a very uh, charismatic, charismaniac uh, church, you know, very evangelical, set apart, lots of rules. And uh, but the, all those rules that you thought about made you believe in God. It made people when they said they had a transformative experience about God. It seemed like they put so much weight on, well, I don't do this anymore. I don't do this anymore. I don't. So I'm proving this transformative experience. But in reality, it never really, I never really bought into it. And then when I got out of that world and had some transformative experiences personally with God that I wasn't planning on or wasn't trying to find or anything, then all of a sudden I had something to actually go, oh, that was real. And it's not that great. Having a kid. The best part about it is when the kid is just horrible or it's, you know, some of the best times of my life, I, I promise you, was when I, our first child, Ruby, our daughter, would wake up in the middle of the night crying. It's 2 a.m. and it was just me and her and I was just rocking her. I was like, how is this amazing? I never would have wanted this. It sounds horrible. My sleep? Mm-hmm. I, over, you know, this sounds like, this is, I wouldn't trade, I, you couldn't, I don't care who was knocking on the door. You know, yeah. it, it doesn't matter. I would not leave this moment. And so I think some of those times, I think you're right now that you're saying that, it doesn't feel like you can rationally, you can even get there as much as you can think about it. It doesn't necessarily even going to help you make a correct decision or, or wrong decision, yeah. maybe. Yeah. So this is just like with the, the, the uh, jumping in the, in the river example, the question is like, you would think that if you think about it rationally, what people say that they're going to have all these um, intense moments and you're going to love it, even if now, you know, you don't, you know, you don't feel that way. You think, well, wait. To have the motivation to choose to become like, you know, up at 2 a.m. rocking your daughter or to, you know, jump into the jump into the river. It's like you have to understand the nature of these future experiences and how valuable they are and, and what it'll be like for you. But you can't. So like because you haven't had them and they're just so yeah. different from the experiences that you've had before. And you have to form this attachment relation to the baby in order to feel that. So how are you if you can't know the value of that and how amazing it's going to feel in the important inside way. Like you can't imagine it. You can't kind of simulate it. Even if someone could tell you that you feel it, there's a way in which you still don't know it. And you need to know it in that special inside way to be motivated to change up your whole life or maybe even just to jump into the river. I mean, (laughs) so we're now we're very into just behavioral science in some way, because what occurs to me once I get a grip on this concept is, well, wait a second. I don't know what future me even would want. So if I'm going to become even more open-minded, there has to be all kind of things that seem unpleasant to me mm-hmm. uh, that I would like to avoid that I'm wrong about. Yep. So now I have this very bizarre impulse to 
do things that I know I don't like <laughs> yeah. and just to see if I can do them and what would happen in this very experimental way. And part of it was, um, you know, I've been through some personal pain and stuff in the last few years in a way that I would have never chosen. And then I go, wow, I'm so glad. And so now I'm curious about the nature and relationship of pain. Um, and I think it was actually Agnes that I, I saw, she wrote a quote or a tweet or something, or maybe got it from somewhere, but that, Something along the lines of suffering, uh, pain that you can't, oh shit, I'm going to mess up the quote, but pain that you can stand isn't really suffering, you know, mm -hmm. at all. If you if you choose it and can handle the pain, then it doesn't actually qualify as suffering was the gist of the quote. Uh, and suffering when you aren't willing to do it and you don't see the benefit in it, mm -hmm. that's, su that's suffering, like a way to think of those two. And in this case, I think of the transformative experience as like if I exercise every day, then I'll like exercising in X amount of days. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and so can I just, if I know that, I know I can't know what it'll feel like, those people that say they love exercise, and I never believe them, to be honest. And then I made myself exercise every day until I did. Mm -hmm. But And all that was was doing something that I don't like. So right. what a weird point of view to have. Right. No, that is super weird. I feel like those kind, that kind of example works because there's a way in which you can step back and say, look, I'm not going to like exercising these different things, but, but ac across all of those possibilities, I'm still going to value exercise. When it gets really hard is when you think exercise is worthless. Mm -hmm. How do you then motivate yourself right. to exercise, right? If you really don't think it's a value, but if you really think back there, oh yeah, it's valuable, then I get, then it's still really weird and interesting how we can kind of transform ourselves in that sense. But the, the paradox isn't, isn't, isn't as intense as when you say, I don't want to become a parent. Or, um, or I want to have sight or in my, I, I have this yeah, example of like, what if you had the choice to become a vampire or something like that, right? Where you don't like where, what you believe now is at odds with what you're going to think later, like in, in, in all respects. Mm -hmm. And that's kind of crazy. Like if you really don't want to have a baby, you just don't like children and then you have a child, right? Um, like it, it doesn't make any sense. If I really just dislike right. children and I just didn't want to, didn't want to have one and had wanted nothing to do with them, then why would I become a mother? Like that doesn't make sense. And if you say, well, because it'll change you and transform you into a person who loves being a mother, I think, well, that's great. I could have a frontal lobotomy as well, but you know, <laughs> right. I'm going to do that. Right. That ain't well, me though. That, so exactly, what, exactly. Does it like, it almost feels like suicide of your current self. Exactly. Like exactly. I won't, I won't get to be me anymore who, you know, I don't drink at the moment, I, I, but I'm telling you, Definitely my favorite thing is drinking. It, I, I'm almost positive that it's my favorite thing to do is maintain a buzz and think about it. And I don't drink right now. And I remember when I was drinking every day, I thought I would be so devastated if I didn't get this pleasure out of this activity, mm -hmm. you know. Mm -hmm. And so right. uh, I, I, that guy's gone. Yeah. I yeah. mean, I don't know how to even think about that, but I, it's the experience, you know. I, I think that there are just some deep puzzles. I don't think so. I mean, so one thing that I'm not very good at is saying, well, so how do we solve these problems? Cause I just think there's all these problems. I actually don't think there's any kind of straightforward answer. I think like what life involves a lot of times are these kinds of really weird divisions and splits into like who you are now and then who you are, you know, 15, 20 years from now. And that's actually like what human life involves. And if you want a life, especially if you want a life like the, 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 how you were describing where you and Toby like experience lots of different things, I think that's a really interesting and rich way to live a life. And it can involve a lot of pain and suffering and maybe pain and suffering that you don't want, but that it happens mm -hmm. upon you, but 
that also you learn from that and it, it teaches you. I don't, I don't think rationality can really, there are ways you can try to make sense of it, but I don't think rationality um, really does such a great job. I just think there might be some like fundamental paradoxes. Um, well, that's what, that was my very first question that I wrote. I said, rational decision, decision-making question mark. Is there really such a thing? <laughs> I know that probably, I, I understand why it would be. And, and, you know, if you played the odds or whatever, this is, even if it fails, this is the right path to take 10 times, you know, 20, whatever. Uh, but it, it's tough for me sometimes thinking about that rational de- decision, because there's been so many times in my life where I didn't, what everybody else on the outside of me said, you're making an irrational decision, but it was totally the right one. Just like this. So many, my mother and father told me moving to, to Champaign, Illinois was a not really a good decision. Mm-hmm. We shouldn't do it. And we're moving far away from family. Why are you doing it? Said the same thing about starting a band, said all these things. But I thought we got to try. Mm-hmm. And, and so that's why we did it. You know, there, there was some things that lined up here. And with all the try, but that try, same as, well, I got to at least try to jump off in the, in the river. Even if, if this time it doesn't work out, I'll never do it again. But if I can do it this one time, at least I'll be on the other side of that, of this question. Now mm-hmm. I'll, I'll have uh, some data right. on the other side of the question, as opposed to what if the, the what ifs are what always kill people. That's what everybody on their deathbed always, I wish I would have tried this thing. I wish I'd have done that. It feels like that's the thing when you stay on this side, if you never do it, then you feel like you missed out. But that poses the next question is, how do you know? Because you're still this person. Yeah. How do you know you missed out on anything? Right. right. Well, so so I would say there's a couple of things. So one is that I don't think ordinary us ordinary humans are especially good at being rational. But there's also a, like a high level theory where like in theory, could we act rationally? Like if we did everything perfectly, could we, you know, it, you know, and I and I think in many cases there is a kind of perfect like rational, perfectly rational thing to do, whether or not we actually achieve that is another thing. But in some cases, maybe there isn't even any perfectly rational way of making sense of things. And I think with some of the kinds of transformative like life experiences that we're discussing, there may not even be any kind of perfect solution. You know, even if we were perfect reasoners, like the best possible machine that we could construct. And that's just like, that's just kind of fact about, about reality. And that's okay. I mean, it all, Gosh, it makes me want to ask the question though. Maybe you have to build the irrationality into the machines. Then are you? Is that gonna? Oh, well, I think that that can be a very um, useful way to make a machine more human-like. Is to is to build in a certain kind of um, certain kinds of flawed. They're 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 not. They're flawed reasoning from the shall we say highly theoretical perspective. But then um, from the practical perspective, maybe it's the way that a human being would ordinarily think. And so it's flawed theoretically, but not flawed practically. It captures mm-hmm. human thinking. And that's yeah. something really important for us to, to – When y'all say irrational, are y'all, are y'all meaning emotion? Like is that no, – when people talk no, about – Well, when t- people no. talk about ah, – oh, oh, let me say – so, so what, what I mean is that um, there are these – Don't pit those two against each other. <laughs> yeah, no, exactly, exactly. No, no, you need emotion because that gives you your motivation to act. Right. So those two things fit together. Um, it's more like – um, rational decision theory and, and decision making um, can be thought of mathematically, and I think it's very important to think about probabilities and chances and how and um, and that um, when you act, you want to act in a way that takes account of both the values that you assign to outcomes and the the probability that those outcomes will happen. So when you're like when you're playing um, when you're gambling or whatever, right? You're basically using probability models and making choices, and if you gamble well, then you're um, you're following the tenets of, of a certain kind of decision theory, and so. 
And that, that can be the right thing to do in lots of cases. And I think it can be very precise. It's just that sometimes those models don't apply to these uh, particular choice-making contexts that we face you know, in life-changing decisions. Is there any difference one of, when you're talking about transformative experiences? Is is it that you really are a new person? I know, like, uh, I think something like our our atoms change and our molecules change. You know, we're even even our skin's different. All this stuff as we get older. But is it is it actual real change? Are you when you say that? Is it like you really are in a sense a different person, or is it something's been dormant and now it's a, been awakened? Like, is it, something no, like. Like maybe you were always a mother, but it just wouldn't, it took this outside right. entity to, to awaken it inside of you. Okay. So, um, there were two I things like that you question. were asking me. I'm going to answer your second, the okay. second thing that you just finished with. But the first thing, just, I just want to mention, it touches on the metaphysics of, of, of objects and selves, which, and I teach courses on this, right? So there's this famous issue called the ship of Theseus, where you replace one plank at a time and replace like this old ship. And you take a new plank and you put one in and you get throw away the old plank and you put a new one in again, step by step. And it seems like you have that ship all the time, even though you're changing all the atoms bit by bit. But then there's a puzzle. Well, actually, I, I had lied. I didn't throw away those old planks. I was actually rebuilding that ship in my basement. And so now I have two. Right? So, <laughs> okay, anyway, so if you take one of my classes, that's what you're going to think about. <laughs> but so there are these problems about like what it really means to change and kind of create a new, a new self. And so we can go there in a minute if you want. But the issue about... Um, um, about that you were, that you were raising at the end, like is, you know, was it, was it, was that desire always there just kind of concealed? Right. And then did having a child just reveal that, that, that value and that preference? That's one way to think about some of these puzzles. But what I want to say is that's not always the right thing. So when somebody really doesn't want to have a child and their mom comes to them and says, but you'd be such a wonderful mother. I know you'd be so happy. Right. Maybe. And let's say mom is right. That person would be happy if they had a child. Mom could be right for at least two different reasons. One reason could be, yes, there's some desire to be a mother that's just kind of not really, that she's not able to recognize right now. But it could also just be, no, she really doesn't want to be a mother. It's just that when she has the baby, she's going to change, and then she's going to enjoy being a mother. Whose choice is that? I mean, when you're talking about manipulating people and influence, then all of a sudden you've got a real can of worms. Exactly. That's where the puzzles come up because sometimes it's just a reveal, like the experience reveals a preference that was latent, but sometimes it implants a preference because it changes. (laughs) And like how, you know, how are you going to know ahead of time, which one it is, you know? And so, so, so someone can be like insulted. No, I don't, like, don't tell me what I really think. I know what my preferences are and they could be absolutely right. Even though later on, they're still going to be super happy to be a mom. So you could even use persuasion as a trick to get somebody to start a process in which case they won't be able to turn back from and they'll think it's their idea the whole time, you know? I mean, exactly. Or, or, or put another way, you can program people mm-hmm. with propaganda and other th- I mean, you know what I mean? People are programmable right. is basically the... Yeah. The software gets updated sometimes in a big way. You go to a... You don't update from 10.12, you go to mm-hmm. software version 11 all of a sudden. I think conspiracy theories sometimes work like this because it's like, or if you become a conspiracy theorist, because you get, you slip into thinking about the world in a different way uh-huh. and then it sort of slowly works on you. And then you get to a point where like, you know, you can't even get back to that old self and um, yeah, so, you know, it's very, it's creepy. <laughs> but so, I mean, I'm a little torn on in my view, just my just tunnel vision view of myself. It seems like, it feels as if it's an obvious virtue to be more open to transformative experiences. But you said a minute ago, maybe not. Um, and I'm trying to get my head around 
the idea that that could be a preference that everybody could have. Like, oh, I don't like to change. Mm -hmm. You know, I, I would think that's not, uh, doesn't sound better, but I'm trying to get my head around the point of view that would say, no big changes for me. That's better for me. And I guess that's right too. I but I'd like to pr put them in a hierarchy and say my way's better. But I don't, I, I don't know. I think, I, well, I think <laughs> no, no. Yeah. So it's, I mean, it's complicated. I'm a philosopher. It's always complicated. Mm -hmm. But um, the first thing is that you can think of, take some choices. It seems like, like you don't want to be eaten by sharks or whatever. Right. But like a choice, like becoming a parent or not having children. I really think that so, some people will say, look, I like who I am now. Say they have no children. I value who I am now. Uh, it's not like it's perfectly rational and reasonable for me to stay that person, right? I don't mm -hmm. want to become right. that that new self that um, um, that I that I could be, and I think that's okay. Or like I don't. I actually I don't want to move um, to another country. I want to live here, and 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 I, I value the self that I am now, living here in New Haven, Connecticut. I mean, I, and I think I'm allowed to do that. So there's a way in which you can reject. Um, the new change because you value who you are, not mm -hmm. because you don't value that other possibility. It's just that you put, place a higher value on what you know, as opposed to discovering something that you don't know. Mm -hmm. And you can think about this when it really comes into play and where it's, I think there are not, there are hard questions here and no easy answers is when, what if I said to you, well, look, we could operate on you and take away your site and you mm -hmm. would have a transformative experience Mm -hmm. And all of a sudden you would hear things you could never hear before. Um, and people who have gone blind, often it's very difficult. The transition is, is difficult, but there are lots of testimonials where people who, when they become fully blind and, and live their lives as, as a blind person say, well, now I feel like I value who I am now and I would never go back. Mm -hmm. I, it's, I mean, maybe that would happen to me, but I'm not going to choose to become blind. Right. And so it's, I, and, and so I, I, I want to say on the one hand, we, can reject transformative experiences. On the other hand, I want to respect and I, uh, the, the, the person who says, my life is better now as a blind person, I don't want to go back. I think they're right. Like they're valuing the self that they are. Mm -hmm. That's completely coherent. There's some interdependent situations where that kind of comes up. But is it, uh, you're, I'm sure you're familiar with it, but isn't it true that some people in the deaf community have children and prefer their children to be deaf so that yeah. they participate in the same culture. Yes, absolutely. And that's a really weird question, but I kind of understand that right. in a way. Yes. But it seems kind of wrong in a way. <laughs> I know. Well, always see those of us with ordinary like audition, right? I mean, we value that, right? And we and we live our lives. I mean, the way that we the way that we live our lives and understand the world is filtered through sound, partly. Mm -hmm. And so um, there's a way in which we can't step into the mind of somebody who experiences the world in this very, very different way. So my that they prefer that they prefer, and we have to respect their testimony there. Mm -hmm. That's what that's what I think because it, it'd be different if I could step into the shoes of the person who um, who, who 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 was 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 deaf and part of the deaf community and really evaluate. And then maybe I'm not sure I would have the right to make that that assessment, but at least I would have the information I needed. But I don't have that information. Mm -hmm. Who am I to go and tell them? about their experience, right? Yeah, another one of those is uh, neurodivergence, I think, is a big one there. I mean, I, the, the, the hearing one freaks me out. I think that would be weird to want your kid to not be able to hear, but they genuinely do, and I understand the logic. Mm -hmm. um, a lot of neurodivergent traits from autism to ADHD and mm -hmm. stuff like that, I mean, I know so many people 
And from my point of view that, my gosh, I wouldn't want to be totally neurotypical. No way. Mm-hmm. Like, I, wouldn't, I, I don't think that way. Mm-hmm. That's, I strongly feel the opposite way there. Mm-hmm. But that's kind of the same question. Yes, exactly. But, yes. You know. yes. But, 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 and I want to say, one of the things that I think we can be bad about is not respecting um, like the, the, um, a, a way of living and being that's different from what we know. Um, mm-hmm. and we also are really bad at, and it's understandable, but we're bad at even understanding what we don't know. Right. Like you don't know it, you don't know it. So there's right. this way in which like, um, uh, you know, yeah, this person who's like say neurotypical or not neurotypical, if they're very different from me, right. And, and they value the way that they think about the world, then again, who am I to claim that, you know, right. the way that I think about the world has got to be superior somehow. Yeah, it's just the shape of the environment in a way. Like, I, I mean, it's not that hard for me to think the person who's obsessed with memorizing phone numbers, that that isn't, I mean, that's that's what they really value. And I'm sure they're getting deep meaning and beauty out of it, you know, in, their, in the way that they do, mm-hmm. in a way that has to be the same mm-hmm. as, as, as you mm-hmm. or I and the, and the things that right. we find interesting right. or fascinating. That seems kind of clear to me. Um, but it's very confusing. <laughs> it is. And, and it's also important to separate, like, I mean, we don't live in a world where memorizing phone numbers is a success strategy. Okay. Mm-hmm. But if the world were organized differently, where people who could memorize phone numbers made all the money or mm-hmm. were like just seen as kind of kings and queens of, of the social scene, then it would be very clear, you know, how, yeah. how, how amazing that was. And so there are these kinds of interesting facts about the way the world is, the social world is organized that make it harder for certain types of people to function in the world. That doesn't mean who they are inside or intrinsically the way they live their life is, is, is less valuable. It just means there are kind of functional or practical difficulties that they face. It's crazy how much social pressure is involved with all this. Even talking about uh, someone having a baby, it often is uh, people outside saying, well, you know, well, you got to get married or you got to have a kid, you got to have a career, you got to do all this. And so if you don't do those things, it's immediately looked at as negative. If you don't have a kid, What's going yeah. on? You're supposed to, I mean, that's what we're here for, right? That's, right. <laughs> that's what they'll tell that's you. Right. And then, but if you don't want to, it really is diminishing your value as who, of who you think you are because you're less because you haven't done this. But yeah. also you could look at it, look at all the people who are exhausted from having kids and look at all the trouble and how many kids there are already out there without parents or abusive family mm-hmm. or whatever it might be. You can, you could totally, it seems rationally go, I shouldn't bring another person in the world. Mm-hmm. That, that almost seems like it could be more rational than having the baby. But if you said that your family or your friends might look at you as less, or you don't get to hang out with them the same way because they have kids and they're doing play dates. And so you're on the outside. It's, it's weird how much social pressure is with that. Mm-hmm. And also how much, like how we uh, internalize it in some ways, because that's right. Like we're not being married or whatever it is, you know, um, these kinds of things where, where you don't even realize how much you judge yourself based on how other people are, are thinking about you. Right. Mm-hmm. So, um, do you did you say you don't have another meeting or the four o'clock thing right now? Do you um, have a few more minutes? I, don't, I probably should. I mean, I should probably. Well, I yeah, have, no, totally fine. I'm just saying, I want to wrap. Yeah. We can wrap up if you need to go immediately right now, or I will give a few more th- areas. That I'm curious if we could touch on real quickly. Yeah, we can, a couple we minutes. Can wrap up. Yeah. Um, so the I'm interested in how the, I let you pick out of here between you know uh, addiction and mental illness or Child development are three areas that interest me in this particular way. I mean, I guess I'm particularly most interested in child development because they 
So I guess I'm picking the one, <laughs> unless you have a strong disagreement. <laughs> but but it's it occurs to me that children have a different relationship with transformative experience at especially at different ages in that they're often forced into them mm -hmm. and very willingly and they're just very very open mm -hmm. and so they're constantly having them it seems mm -hmm. like mm -hmm. is that mm -hmm. the case does yeah, that qualify I, in your definition it does um not okay so let me make a distinction though between um new experiences like tasting chocolate ice cream for the first time which i wouldn't count as transformative mm -hmm. in the important sense but still involve a kind of discovery. Like, I don't think before you've had anything resembling chocolate ice cream that you're gonna know what it's like until you have it. I mean, it's super cool that, and so children get lots of small new experiences, um, but then they also have big transformative experiences. Some of them just come from conceptual development, like getting the ability to do mathematics or, um, you know, getting the um, ability to kind of understand like, um, um, certain kinds of loving relationships or falling in love even, right? Like that's a big one for adolescents, I think. Um, and um, so those are transformative experiences. And then like if we send them to school or we, they go to college, I think that's uh, often a transformative experience that, you know, maybe we have to even push the kids into, but it's really important. It kind of forms, forms people's minds. Mm -hmm. But it seems like they, you know, they're con they're, they have them more often um yes. that, that with more, a greater frequency with less consent to them happening That's kind right. of a thing and so they're in a posture that and we, everybody talks about children are so flexible and they can learn so much and it seems like that's part of it right they're able to take more leaps that they're Sorry, no, that, that's a good point. So I, I was thinking that one reason why they have more is just because they know less about the world. And so one mm -hmm. criterion for a transformative experience is it has to, you have to have a new experience. And the more background experiences you have, the harder it is to come across something new, not impossible, but just less likely. And then also because children are changing so much, it's can also like, because they're developing and their brains are changing so much, they can also change personally much more, much more quickly and significantly much more often. Um, but you're also saying that, yeah, there's a certain kind of plasticity right? Mm -hmm. That, um, that um, children and, and young adults have that might actually make them be able to kind of reorganize the way they think about the world more effectively than, than older people do. And that seems like very plausible. It, it seems like they just have to. It's not like when I see adults that can't change or don't want to, mm -hmm. I, I have a sense of, well, they're just being lazy or something. I know they're it, it's different. Yeah. You can't stay like a kid forever, whatever. But when people talk about the youthful qualities, that has to be one of them that you slow down. But the, the children seem to be forced into perpetual change so much that it just is easier, like a person who exercises. And it seems to me that that quality could be preserved or extended um, as an interest of mine, basically. Yeah. yeah. No, no. I think um, I don't know what to say about it because I don't. Um, I don't think it's been um, explored empirically, but it, it sounds like a very plausible, um, a very plausible thing. And it's certainly true that um, adults rely much more on kind of established ways of thinking and the, uh, like pa uh, patterns of neural firing. So there's like, as I said, kind of less plasticity as they get older. So it's not a surprise in some sense that they might have more trouble reorganizing the way they think about the world. Um, mm -hmm. But there's a lot of interesting questions here. Yeah. Wow. Uh, yeah, this is also fascinating. Toby, you got anything else? No, this is, yeah, it really is amazing. Yeah, I, mean, I could talk about the kid stuff for a day. We're going through this now. We're just, our 10-year-old's moving, and we're talking about transformative experiences. Well, she's having one, but also she's becoming older. She, she's still a kid, but she's the little girl that I held. So mm -hmm. she has to fight through that with me. <laughs> like, she's mm -hmm. not... 
at that time, she wanted to be a baby that was held and wanted me to feed her and hold her and comfort her, right? Now she wars against that. You know, she you know, sometimes she won't even let me, hug, you know, hey, can I have a hug? Well, maybe not. I'm like, okay, well, you know, all right. Or, you know, and she's feeling all these things. So she's becoming something. And our, our relationship is changing and it's, it's transformative in the sense of both of us are like two planets moving around each other. Or I'm, I, you know, I'm the moon and she's the earth. And what I just, we're floating around each other now trying to figure out. What is this thing now? What is our relationship now? I feel like that's a really, especially parenting involves a lot of like, it's like it's constantly changing as the kids get older and constantly having to reassess um, what they're able to do, how you're going to let them find themselves and still be safe, right? So they're yeah. like, I mean, the, one of the biggest challenges of parenting isn't any particular task as much as like allowing yourself to be flexible, to constantly mm-hmm. update um, in response to the changes, like the changing abilities of, of your child and to kind of gauge that correctly. That's right. so hard and so stressful. And we have to do it over and over and over again. <laughs> right. That's what I'm saying. It's, it's like she, a she perpetual taking the yeah. lead. My daughter wants to go do something, but I'm the one that saved her from the street getting hit by the car. I stopped that. I kept you safe. And now you want to go do something that sounds unsafe. Mm-hmm. Wait, you can't go on, you know, there, there's COVID out there. My God, yeah. what are you doing? You but know? you have to let them do some you of this. Have you to. have to, you know? Yeah. You're right. It's, I, it, it's the most bizarre thing as a parent, like talk, talking to you, my wife and I, like, okay, we're going to let them. It, we, we know that COVID's out there, and, it, and especially during this time, mm-hmm. but we want our kid to have interactions with other friends and we're just going to, it, it feels like you're taking a chance, but also you're not. And it, that, it, you know, this is, it is really a unique time in the world, I guess we're all going through this exact moment of, should I do this or shouldn't I do this? And am I careful or am I not careful and all that? So, mm-hmm. And uh, there's so much uncertainty. There are real unknowns. Like it's different from a case where all the, like, you know what all the alternatives are because we were like, we we're clear on all the medicine. Uh, we just don't have the kind of information or the science even right. um, to be able to, to have enough confidence in some of our predictions. So it's a ton of guesswork and that uncertainty is like, I think really painful. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Well, thank you for giving so much of your time and sharing your mind with us because now it's just so much. That we barely just got into proposing a bunch of things that yeah. I hope will make everybody think, but my mind is stirred up. Um, so thank you, Lori, very much for spending time with us today. And people, if I'm right, can find you at lapaul.org, and uh, they can find your books, uh, Transformative Experience. They can get that off your website or go toward uh, to Amazon. Uh, any other place you want people to check you out or, or anything oh, coming up? Hey. They could, if, if they're interested, they can mess around on the Yale Philosophy website. And I, I but that's, yeah, awesome. lapaul.org is probably the best place to go. So perfect. Yeah. We really appreciate your time. Thank you so much. This has been wonderful. Great. Thanks for having me on the show, you guys. Man, it just, I'm telling you, this, the guests on this podcast are just so brilliant. And I feel so. <laughs> well, what do you want? Dumber people than I, us? Well, I feel so guilty that they would give me, Toby Merrill, their time. I didn't. <laughs> I graduated I know, I high school too. and summer school, man. <laughs> I graduated high school and summer school. My own father didn't come see me walk across in August when I graduated. I'm, I'm telling you, I'm not the smartest person in the world. And to be able to uh, just ask questions on on this level that I'm at, and they be able, and these folks are able to answer questions and talk in ways that are just so eye opening. It's just it's just great. I mean it it's crazy. I, I mean, I had a million other questions, really, but just the stuff, the work that she's doing uh, and really just talking about these experiences, it really does. I mean, that's the way I feel right now, that I'm having an unbelievable transformative experience where (laughs) I'm 44 and my family just moved again. Mm -hmm. And we thought we were going to live in Charlotte. We were like, Charlotte's it. We're not really going to move again. And then here we are. And it's But every time you're just saying, 
become a di- like i mean isn't it just the old toby's dead there's a new toby i'll i'll, I'll get to meet him soon like and, and that's just so crazy to think about but that's kind of yeah. happening either way in some sense like you can't really hold on i right. mean I, that's why i don't really understand why embracing the change isn't almost clearly the better process if you can handle it and i i guess maybe it's a I don't. I mean, I don't want to frame it that way, but the world changes. Right. So how could you expect you not to and that work out? Because then that, you're not in control anymore. Like right. it almost feels like I have more control if I embrace change. Because you have. To, I mean, you have to. The the old me's gone. I mean, right. That's that is sad. I don't. I liked the old me. I don't know. <laughs> it makes yeah. me a little bit lost. But you know, you have you. You but have you don't to change, change so why not yeah, just do it? you don't grow, though. That's the only way. You ha- In order to grow, you have to change. That's what I always really— bo- One of the fundamental things that bothered me uh, growing up Christian was how they say the un- God is unchangeable. From age to age, he does not change. And I was like, what? What, what are you talking about? I mean, what? God only stays in 10th grade? Or, or, or you know, just he knows everything, so there's, no, there's nothing— so that would mean to me that almost seems like a weaker God. He's unable to change. He's unable to go. You know what? Maybe I will forgive this. Maybe this isn't a big deal. Oh, maybe mm-hmm. this is actually a big deal. I mean, God can't do that. That that doesn't make any sense to me. And, and always it made me think. Well, I have to. I have to change. And then because what I've realized, and I mean, you know this, and I, I'm what I forget what philosopher said this, but. Whatever uh, I think, Rocky author, at the end of probably, Rocky Four, five. Rocky, yeah. that- <laughs> If you can change, <laughs> and I can change, we all can change. Rocky, Rocky, man. Uh, but once a the box is open, I think it might even been an author. But once a a box is open or whatever, your world's expanded. You can't go back into the box. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? And and mm-hmm. so that so how how could you, you? Why would you want to go back in the box? What you would know it's not true in there. You know there's more, and so th- I feel like God has to be like that, and God's creating all of this to make more, right? What There was nobody, and then all of a sudden God created everything. Well, that sure is a hell of a change. There was nothing, yeah. and then God breathed life and everything. Well, that sure does seem like a change to me, and God sure did. So it wasn't anything? God b- created all this in seven days, and it meant nothing because he doesn't change by it? He's not affected by our good or our bad? Or, I mean, you're telling me he's affected by every single thing we do, and it doesn't change him a bit. And I mean, transformative experiences are the the thing, and it really did highlight it for me. Talking to her, I almost think transformative experiences thrust upon you without your making the decision on it really do seem like the most powerful and most real. I'm not saying those are good. There's often really horrific ones and bad ones that crush you and are terrible. And I'm not saying it's good, but I'm saying they might transform you the most. Well, there's you know people who've lost their legs that 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 you know that that say they're they're happier now or better right. and and the I mean it's weird I mean there's all kind of things the people that had cancer and say they're right. they're grateful for that experience and now they're better you know that totally exists but you know what about the other there's a two I didn't get to here at least which was one what do you think that means about addiction though something like what if you got addicted to something is that bad or good you'd be different right. or you know like when you are addicted to be not addicted is a, a big change but also you you could yeah choose like you well, know your preferences yeah. change but you know you can learn to exercise and be transformed or you could become an addict to something that's 
and you'll like right. it when you get there, right? Yeah. That, and once again, the outside world might not like it, and they might say you're bad or dangerous or whatever. Same as your mother-in-law says, why aren't you having a baby? You know, we really want a grandbaby. You know, the, everybody on the outside says something, but you're experiencing mm-hmm. something. Now, well, I, I'm. I, if you want to take it to a dark place, sure. Uh, I was thinking about it. Uh, you know how sometimes like kids with autism will make humming noises or make you know different sounds and stuff like that, and it's it seems to be uh, from the little I know comforting. And it's just something that happens, right? And people go, "Well, you got to stop or whatever. You don't don't make that noise or uh, you're you know you're doing this thing or you're aligning your cars, mm-hmm. play with them or you know you, you tell somebody to to change what they're doing and it, just like you said, but they might be really enjoying it. They might it might be something yeah. there and on the outside is what bothers people. If you want to go really dark, and I'm not saying this is good. I'm not at all saying this is good, but think about cutting and somebody that can't handle something and then they relieve pressure in some ways feel better if I'm not mm-hmm. from what I've heard and read and there's scars now on their skin right and uh-huh. everybody looks at those as so sad and so awful and so horrific and terrible and that person is mentally in really bad shape I'm not denying any of that maybe that is the truth but maybe it was a horrible time and they were doing the best they could and those scars are reasons they're still here or it helped them feel a certain way. Yeah. I'm not I'm not saying that it's good to cut yourself. It's not. If you're a cutter, get help for sure. But I'm saying that we when you hear about this stuff, it's always everybody on the outside saying how bad yeah. it was right for that person. It could be that they don't understand. <laughs> I mean, it's no secret that our community is and we attract people who typically are going to describe themselves as outsiders or feeling like outsiders from right. whatever community that they come from. That typically seems to be the case. Problem is, I see myself as an outsider. I fucking love it. Like right. I I like it that I'm different right. than the mainstream, I guess. Now, if you told me, "Oh, Matt, all the, you know all those ways where you're weird and different, um, we could make them. We could make you fit into the mainstream a lot better, and you would like it because then you'd have so much more in common with so many more regular people. I feel like that would be horrible. Right. I'm already like this or something, and so I don't. I mean, maybe they're right, but I don't think they are. But you know, why would I want to be more normal? I don't think I do want to be more normal. Right. Well, the but other thing I would too, like it if I was. I guess. But the other thing too about that is when you say normal. That might just, yeah. What is that? Right. What does that mean? And that maybe that's just today. Like maybe tomorrow you're super normal. Maybe tomorrow you're wearing white uh, New Balances and cutting the grass in jean shorts. And you know what I mean? That that's what people think is normal. Uh, you know, a man in his forties, you just cutting the grass. What? But I mean, maybe you'll be that. But neither, none of those define you. That's what is so frustrating about these d- d- living in this day and age is everybody wants to define you by this exact moment or or something you did at some time, and you're not even maybe that person anymore. God knows I'm not the person I was in high school or when I was in my 20s or my 30s. Yeah. I, I, some people would have killed to have had the career I've had. Killer band, great podcast. Was it good? Has it been good for me? Lost one, maybe my all-time best friend because of some of this. Has it been mm-hmm. good? Is it all good? Maybe I would still do it. if you. That's if you, why I don't understand the no. no regrets exactly. Like, Is that really – that's like a – I understand no when people say no regrets. I kind of understand it, but I kind of think that, I mean, right. that's kind of stupid, right? Like, right. that just means you won't consider a different, like, it's like the opposite right. of this. It's like you're just embracing no matter what ever happened that it, you could, it couldn't be bad. Like, that's a seems like a story you tell yourself to me. Right. Instead of facing, yeah, 
probably shouldn't have done that. It's just you can't imagine the counterfactual. So you're just going to say right. no regrets. <laughs> I, I don't really, I, I don't think that makes a ton of sense. Do you think no regrets is, a, is actually a valid point of view? I tend to want to reject it, although yeah, I think I, everybody pretty much holds it. <laughs> yeah, I live with daily regret, so I, I could never. <laughs> You're honest. I'm, I mean, come I'm on. constantly yeah. regretting things I did. As soon as we, you have buyer's remorse. You have life remorse. I could have everything. had more buyer's remorse in my life than this house, and I <laughs> love it. And it's the greatest. It's a great deal. We're paying less. I mean, we have we, everything's amazing, and I'm like, there was that other house. There was that one we could have got, maybe other, you know, and that's what going yeah. back to what LA was saying. I mean, the, you, my regret. The problem is, I'm on the other side now, trying to add some kind of rationality to that other person. Like, am I mad at the person Toby that, for example, helped buy this house, or yeah. or what am I saying? I didn't make the. I, I don't understand why we put so much concern. Me personally. Why do I wrestle so much concern with making the right decision? You've definitely God, I mean, see, I like I, that about you because it's like all the stones get unturned when you make a decision with Toby. Like we explore everything that could be explored, and then act <laughs> afterwards we talk about it and see if it was right or not. There's a lot of learning that, for, that comes from that. Um, but you spend a lot of your time wondering if you went to the right choice at the food court at the mall, which is a little extreme. I know. But, you have tons of regrets. You probably have notebooks full of regrets I, of wrong food court decisions. I probably, <laughs> I've probably never been made more fun of than I, I, the, on tour. We've been on tour for decades now with with our bands, and you don't know how many times I would be standing in front of. I'd just be walking around the, the food court, and I'd look over, and there's a group of everybody else in the hole eating, laughing at me because I right. could not decide on Chick Fil A or Taco Bell or this local Chinese place that's only in you know Cincinnati. And then, <laughs> and then after whatever you choose, you're never happy with I, it. I'd throw it in the trash. <laughs> you always know it was wrong. Oh, why did I do this? I knew Chick-fil-A was good. I had to step out and do this. Here I go. Good Lord. Anyway. All right. One, one more, though. One more, though, is just, you know, I'm again, same as cutting. I'm not making a determination on right. it. But it, this whole conversation also gets squirrely around things like, uh, you know, medication, SSRIs and, you know, mental health. Like, isn't that now you're, you to take that pill is right. Uh, is it, is it, is that, you know, I, I, she would have a good answer for this, but my question is, is that, is that just a, a pill form of a transformative experience? Because I mean, the, the pills is intended to alter your personality. Yeah, that's that is so the goal of it. Is that just the transformative experience in a pill? Right. Just you can take it and see. Right. I mean, that that's kind of what that is, right? Well, I think probably people would say if you were in pain and somebody said, Hey, if you take this sure. pill, you won't be in pain. Right. But I'm but nonetheless, I'm right. just saying that's the choice you're making right. though. Like would yes. this other p- p- person prefer the experience of whatever that will be right. is the question. Right. Do you know? You might be better off on it or not. I'm not c- commenting on that. I right. don't even mean to make it that judge. I'm just saying you're taking a blind, you're stepping across, you're taking a leap of faith right. that, I mean, in some ways it's reversible, but that, you know, in some ways that, that one isn't. But either way, the medicated use is, is right. definitely a different you, right? Yes. So I, that I, one I, seems. I, I was thinking about important. it, and even as, think about it on this level. Just think about a vaccine. 
I <laughs> easily take a vaccine and I'm a different person after taking it. I know it sounds hilarious or giving it or Not making sure my kids know, get vaccinated. Though, is it? it's a way but, well, here's why because I think, oh, I know now that I'm protected from these things or whatever. Like that's why I've been wonder, I've been wondering about COVID. What will I be like on the other side going, yeah, I always take vaccines. I'm not probably going to get it. Or you feel like Superman way less if you had it. And look yeah. at those dumb people that didn't get it. Oh, my God. <laughs> He's got that vaccine swagger. So I'm, I'm, <laughs> I, I, I might be a worse, meaner person if I take the vaccine. or something. Yeah, you know, I might be less forgiving. He thinks he's so much better than me. because right. <laughs> right. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I don't know yeah. what kind of person. But I'm go- I mean, will I take it? What if, I, what if I'm like, ooh, I don't know. That, that came from Putin. In Russia, I don't think I'm going to do it. Or so I'm not going to give that to my You'll kids. You'll love being know. a communist and living in Russia. Don't worry. Yeah. You'll be transformed. You'll join the KGB. The vodka alone You'll is worth happy. it. Good yeah. God. <laughs> anyway. Hey, if you ain't in the BC Club, join the BC Club. Uh, I sure would appreciate it. Matt would appreciate it. Reeve would appreciate it. All these people would appreciate it. The BC well, Clubbers would appreciate it. It's clearly been a uh, uh, you-know-what for everybody that's joined. Transformative experience. Yes, it has. 100%. You join it, you ain't going back. And we're doing yeah. lots of cool things. Uh, it was really last week, Matt and I, we, we do a Monday and Friday episode for just the clubbers. But last week, Reba, our very own Reba Hansen. Reba, uh, what do we call you? Re Vegas? What was it? Reba Las Vegas? Um, she did an interview with a lady from the club, and it was awesome. And it was talking about cult experiences. And we're going to start doing some more of those. So if you're in the club and you've had some transformative experiences, you might end up on a podcast for other clubbers and who knows, maybe one day on the main, we'll see, but there's a lot going on. Uh, hopefully one day we'll get to do the BC con again. Mm-hmm. And, uh, good God, there's all this stuff coming along. And so, uh, yeah, we sure would appreciate it if you joined the BC club today. Yep. Go to the BC I think it'll get you right through to a Patreon. We weren't previously on Patreon, but if you're a Patreon person and you are comfortable on that platform already, we're now in that space. So, Maybe that'll put you over the hump. To oh go yeah, ahead that's and join right. Because it's as simple as joining any other Patreon you've ever done. Lots of dollar levels. You do seven dollars a month. I think that's reasonable if you've listened to this podcast for. Let me see how many hours you think somebody should have uh, listened to this podcast before they feel like, man, maybe I give seven dollars a month. How many hours till they should start feeling super guilty? I think uh, hour and a half. <laughs> no um i think of it like a tip is basically why i look at it you yes know? it's uh i think that barista i mean i'm sure she did a really hard 12 seconds of work when you gave her a dollar yeah and it was worth it you should give it was worth it i think you should tip that ten dollars i'll leave give it at much that you can all right <laughs> Otherwise, I'll be actually a barista if you don't join the BC Club. Otherwise, I'm going barista. <laughs> I'm actually will I'm be. talk people's ears off in the time frame I have. I try to push my ideas on them while I give them their <laughs> latte because they tip better. Yeah. No, they don't. I'm, we've been, I'm just kidding. We've been supported super well for a super long time mm-hmm. by a lot of people, and I appreciate that very much. But I think that is the model um, for good entertainment yeah. and media and stuff. I mean, there may be better models in the future, but this crowdfunding type thing, supporting some of the things that you consume, has really worked for, a, you know, we've been doing it for almost, a, I wouldn't say a decade, but I mean, we've been crowdfunding from Emory and doing this for yeah. almost. More than half a decade, yeah. for sure, and it feels quite stable. Maybe it's growing. I don't know. Um, Speaking of baristas. Thank you, everybody, that, that has supported the, us. The barista just gave me a new idea for a new podcast we can start. Christians in cafes getting coffee. There you go. I like that idea. What Jerry Seinfeld Who, show? Who's the host? You? What was Jerry Seinfeld's show on Netflix? Comedians in uh, cars getting coffee. We're Christians mm-hmm. in cafes getting mm-hmm. coffee. Because you know what? Mm-hmm. 
That's the number one people you see, pastors, we reading the scripture and having coffee because they don't have a job during the day. So they're mm-hmm. there reading the scripture. You can yep. go into any cafe in the South, and there will be a Christian in there. You'll see somebody getting mentored. Uh, oh, no my what. God. You will see them getting mentored. <laughs> Mentoring happens at Starbucks. Oh, yeah. Unreal. Thank you, Starbucks, for all the work you've done for Christian mentoring. <laughs> <laughs> see ya. The drugs begin to peak. A smile of joy arrives in me. But sedation changes to panic and nausea. And breath starts to shorten. And heartbeats pound softer.